Hello, hello. Welcome to Don't Judge, Just Love, where we talk about all the things. With no judgment. Only love. That's right. Yes. <laughs> you didn't see, but we nailed just high fi- We just high-fived nailed, right there. The <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, so what are we talking about? People listen. They don't necessarily see it. Unless you go to our YouTube channel, and then you can see this madness as well. Anyway. Go ahead, Chase. That's right. So today in our (laughs) second episode, we're going to talk about our daughter's diagnosis. And we're going to talk about it and share our story in an effort, I think, to help anyone that might be going through this themselves. But also, if you know someone that's going through a diagnosis of sorts, and we hope that this can shed some light, inform you, and help you to know how to support and uh, give a little bit of love, a little bit of love to uh, those that might be going through this, you might know. For sure, yeah. Um, For us, and if you're new here, just a little bit of context, we have three children. Two of our children, our daughters, have a really rare disease called CDG. Um, And, you know, the whole journey that we went through of figuring that out, finding their diagnoses was really difficult. It was very hard to navigate that because... Um, We kind of felt like we were just feeling our way through the dark. There was no real process to it, not a lot of guidance. Um, And so our goal in sharing this episode was, you know, like Chase Chase said, was really to um, hopefully shed some light on how that all goes, on what that process is like, um, share some things that we've learned in hopes that it'll help someone else, whether it's, you know, someone you know, like Chase said, or, or someone directly who's going through something similar. We just don't want anyone in that situation to feel as alone as, frankly, we kind of did um, going through all of that. So, and we'll get into a little bit more of our story in, in just a second. But I was looking, I was doing some research before we we filmed this episode, and there are thirty million people in the U.S. that are living with a genetic disease or a rare disease um, in the U.S. And that's you know. Almost ten percent of the U.S. population. Nine yeah, I mean, percent. That's that's a, a lot, lot of people, people. That are impacted by that. And um, you know, whether it's a, a genetic diagnosis or any other kind of diagnosis, um, we all have to interact with the healthcare system at some point or another. You know, we all, as parents, we're all having to advocate for our children with our healthcare providers. And so, um, we hope that our story will also kind of shed light on that, just how to advocate for your child, how to make sure that you. Um, you know, that you're being heard by your healthcare providers because that was a huge learning curve for us in this whole process as well. That's um, right. So with that, should we get let's, into it? Yeah, let's, let's jump into it. So as we talk about our story, I'm going to kind of highlight a, I would say, six-stage process when you look at the diagnostic process. And the first step in that process is really you know, the patient is struggling with some sort of health problem. Like recognizing that there is some type of healthcare con- health concern. They're presenting in some way that there's an issue. So let's start with that. So what, uh, how did that start? Yeah, so for us, um, with Charlie, I had a completely normal pregnancy. She was born at 39 weeks. Um, normal delivery, we had a C-section, but that was planned. Um, so really, there was nothing that came up in utero, utero, um, to indicate that there may have been medical complexities. Um, it was about, it was around when Charlie was four months old, I would say, was that? Yeah. 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 Um, when this all kind of started to unfold and what happened was we went to a, just a regular scheduled pediatrician appointment. 
um, you know, for her four-month checkup, very routine. And she, we discovered that she had actually lost weight, which is very, very unusual, obviously, for an infant. Two pounds. Went from 10 pounds to eight. Yeah. Um, the pediatrician was immediately very, very concerned, sent us straight to the hospital. Um, they admitted us. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of what I would say became just this very, very long journey. Um, at that point, you know, we they chalked it up to maybe she has food allergies. Maybe there's something with... Um, you know, you're, you're losing your milk because I was nursing. Um, so we decided to stop nursing at that time, move to a hypoallergenic formula, just make sure that she was getting the nutrients that she needed. And, you know, we left with that plan thinking like, okay, we can handle this. Like, that's all it is. That's all this is. Um, and I don't remember the exact amount of time that transpired after that, like what the time frame was exactly, but it, it couldn't have been more, more than, than a year, a month or two. Whatever, oh, oh whatever. sorry. I thought you were talking about something. Yeah, sorry. We'll get, yeah. <laughs> It couldn't have been more than a month or two before the next big concerning thing started yeah. to occur. She, um, Charlie started to have, um, so it's what's, she started to have what's called infantile spasms. Yeah. Um, but we did not recognize it because we had no idea what those were. We didn't know what they looked like. Um, and to us, you know, just to, to look at them, it almost somewhat resembled like a startle reflex. She yeah. would do this thing where she would kind of, yeah, like her, if, you, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, you can see what Chase just did. He kind of mimicked it. But um, her arms would kind of like jolt up. Her, her eyes would sort of roll back a little bit. Um, and it would happen in clusters. You know, it would be like, five to 10 of these in a row. It was often right after she had taken a nap that she would have these, you know, these clusters. Um, and I, I do remember thinking, that's a little weird. But also, she didn't seem in distress. She wouldn't necessarily cry when it was happening. And like I said, it did kind of resemble a startle reflex. Um, and so we honestly, we didn't know to be overly concerned about it. Um, but because of the the weight loss issues, we had started meeting with a speech and swallow therapist who was helping us with um, feeding for Charlie. Um, and I happened in one of the appointments, I happened to mention to her this behavior that I had seen Charlie exhibit that was, you know, somewhat odd looking. Um, and she said to me, I, I just remember it so clearly. She said, I don't want to scare you. Um, but what you're describing does sound a little bit like what seizures can look like in infants. She's like, again, that might not be what it is. I don't want to freak you out, but I just want to put that on your radar so that, you know, so that you know. And of course, that is exactly what it did. It did freak us out, <laughs> which, you know, in the end, for good reason, um, you know, we went home and started Googling and looking things up. We found some uh, videos on YouTube, which we're now, you know, we were so grateful for um, at the time. And sure enough, I mean, these, this behavior that Charlie had been exhibiting looked exactly like these different videos that we found of infantile spasms, which is a seizure that happens in tiny little babies. Um, but it's very, very serious. Um, it can, it's considered a, a catastrophic event um, and an absolute emergency. So we're reading all of this. We, you know, freak out, head straight to the emergency room. Um, and this was the part where, again, going back to, you know, how we had kind of teed this up, the advocacy aspect um, our, our first trip to the emergency room in this context was so interesting because, um, you know, we still don't know exactly what this is, but 
based on her Googling, we suspected that it might be the infantile spasms. So as we're talking to the, the triage nurses and the ER folks, the doctors and stuff, um, we described that to them, but also shared with them that it looked like a startle reflex. And I think by that point, we had started filming when this happened, which I highly recommend, by the way. Mm-hmm. That is one of our number one recommendations. If you see your child doing anything that is concerning from a medical perspective that looks odd in any way, it sounds weird, but I would advise instantly whipping out your phone and filming, like taking film, recording, whatever it is that you're seeing happening, because nothing is better data than actually seeing it. And, and actually, that's how we kind of almost self-diagnosed, right, right? With, with Charlie, because we had seen some YouTube videos exactly. of some other kids that were suffering from in- infantile spasms. Right. And so after we watched that, we were like, oh, we think this is what it is. But then the doctor and the nurses were like, well, you know, there's a lot of people that come in thinking that they have self, that they've diagnosed, you know, what they think their kid has, but let's run through the tests. Well, I don't we, think well, it's this, and we even, you know. We showed them the video um, and, and the particular doctor on call at that time agreed that it looked more like a startle reflex than infantile spasms. And they were ready to send us packing. Like, I I think she's okay. Um, And we had to insist, based on our research and what, you know, what we had seen online, we had to insist that we were really, really concerned that it was this other thing, insist that they have us seen by, you know, have us admitted. We wanted to see a neurologist. Um, And so, again, I mean, just in hindsight, I, I... I can't help but think, I'm so glad that we had the courage to push that with those doctors and to just insist um, that they kept us, you know, and that they listened to what our concerns were um, so that we would get the further testing that we needed because sure enough, that that's exactly what it was. Um, you know, and, and we could make, we could, we could tell you every single detail about how this all went down. It's probably not necessary, but to make a long story shorter, um, you know, that whole, that one appointment kind of led us to meeting the neurologist that became our ongoing neurologist, doing tests to, that confirmed that she was in fact having infantile spasms. Um, we came to understand that infantile spasms are usually just a symptom of something else. They are, you know, they're, a presentation of a larger diagnosis. They're not necessarily a diagnosis in and of themselves. Um, And so it became the starting point of like, okay, so why is she having these? What is going on? Um, So again, in the diagnostic process, so we have the patient experiencing the problem. So the failure to thrive, the infantile spasms, and then, and then when we went, sorry, really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned failure to thrive. That's one thing I forgot to, to add. At that point, four months, you know, if you're a parent, you'll know this, that it's, that's fairly young still to be worried about, like, missing certain milestones, right? Like, but I do think it's important to note that Charlie wasn't, she hadn't really hit any major milestones at that point. She mm-hmm. wasn't sitting up unassisted. Um, you know, she, she was doing something. She could grasp, things like that. Um, you know, she was making eye contact, those types of things. Um, but anything, any of those like gross motor skills, she hadn't hit any of those mile, milestones yet. Um, yeah, sorry. No, no, yeah. To thrive, but I think that's important to note that Agreed. there were some missed milestones as well. That was kind of a, a red flag and an indicator that, uh, but again, going back to advocacy, she was young enough that 
by, you know, the fact that she hadn't hit those yet wasn't overly concerning to her doctors at that point. So it's just a, a piece of this bigger puzzle that we were trying to navigate and, and figure out. Anyway, keep going, Chase. So, no, yeah, it was perfect. And so the the second stage is really uh, the patient interacting with the health system. And so that was kind of our first interaction with it. And then stage three, which uh, I think for some people can be a really long time. Like, I mean, stage three, four, five, and six can, can be like the rest of people's lives. But so stage three, stage three is it's gathering information, right? So it's, it's the testings, it's the physical exams. Um, it's, you know, the blood test, the, um, E, uh, what was it called? E, not EKG, EKG, EEDs, EEGs, um, (laughs) for brainwaves. Um, so it was all of those things. Not actual medical <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but 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 uh, but stage three can take a long time, and for us, from the moment that she had failure to thrive to when we actually got the diagnosis, it was probably it was a year. A year, but let's kind of talk through this stage three a little bit of like what were some of the tests that we went through, um, what were some of the you know a little bit of that that experience. Yeah, stage three is that information gathering where they're it's like discovery where they're just collecting, doing different tests, collecting data to try to figure out what's going on. Um, yeah, I mean, so basically what happened is our neurologist ordered a series of tests and it was sort of this trial trial and error, like ruling things out um, process. Um, I don't remember exactly what the tests were. And obviously these were, these weren't just total shots in the dark. She was analyzing based on how Charlie was presenting mm-hmm. um, this, you know, making educated assessments on what she thought maybe the diagnosis could be, um, you know, we did MRIs, we did, um, we tested for, um, a disease called crab a, which was fatal. Um, so sad. And we were so great. Which for a second, they thought that she had it yeah, right. They, because we were still running some other tests. So I remember they told us, they said, I think that she might have crab a, and then Shan and I went home and researched it. And it was like, Hey, they usually die within their first two years. Right. And that was, I think th- this, so this brings up a good point, And I, I apologize to listeners if this feels all over the place, but um, I'm remembering things as we, things as we go. But it, it brings up a good point that I, I think another um, huge takeaway for us in this whole process was um, understanding that, uh, you know, to you, this is your child and um, it is so emotional going through this process of trying to figure out what is, what is wrong, what is going wrong. Um, and for the healthcare providers, and don't get me wrong, we are we love healthcare professionals. We are so grateful for them. Um, but it was interesting, like a, it was a major learning curve for Chase and I to realize, like they they aren't necessarily going to handle it um, as like what's the word? Maybe as delicately. Delicately, like- that's a perfect word. As delicately as you would expect them, expect them to given the circumstance, because for them on some level, like this is their job, right? This is their day job. They're, they're doing this day in and day out. And it's not to say, I, I feel like all the healthcare professionals we worked with, I felt like they deeply cared about us as patients. Um, you know, but to do that job, I imagine there has to be some level of emotional detachment on some level to be able, just to be able to do it. You know what I mean? Um, and, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what we expected, but some of the deliveries of things felt a little 
jarring, a little lacking in empathy or compassion or um, didn't necessarily strike the right tone given what the circumstance was. You know, you kind of felt like, I'm sorry, we're waiting to hear back if our child has a fatal disease. Do you think you could say that slightly more delicately or like, you know what I mean? Um, And so that's another, I guess, piece of advice that I would put out there is just to kind of, I don't know, put on some thick skin. Um, Don't judge, just love. Truly, (laughs) truly, like in your interactions with healthcare professionals uh, in this process, because I, I think for the most part, they mean well, and if you sense for one second that they don't, um, I would absolutely find someone new. Don't put up with that for one second. I think generally speaking, though, the people who go into that profession do so because they genuinely want to help people, and that was our experience, which we're really grateful for. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone had really great bedside manner or really great tact in how they were handling the emotions, the emotional part of you know, being a patient in that situation. So, yeah. Anyway, great sorry, point. Sorry, Chase. No, that was a great point. Where did I get off? No, that was a great <laughs> point. Tangent. So we, we did a bunch of tests. There were like sleep tests that we did. There was an EEG that we did multiple times. We did MRI. EEG, by the way, is um, testing brain waves. So it's, you know, putting a bunch of electrodes on their head and testing. Um, yeah. Looking for hips arrhythmia where you have um, uneven brain waves. Or irregular, sorry, not uneven, irregular brain waves. For anyone that's a medical professional that's watching, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, technically. We sometimes feel like we should be at this point with everything we've been through, but clearly we're not. We're we're learning. We're (laughs) medical parents in in progress. Yes, anyway, keep going. Um, So great, honey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... Um, any anything else that you want to talk about the the specific test that we did um, that helped us to kind of reach a diagnosis? Because I feel like we almost didn't get a diagnosis with Charlie, and as a result of that, we almost were put into that bucket of like we're not exactly sure what it is, yeah. and so Which, we're going to put it under the umbrella of maybe cerebral palsy or you know or some variation of that. Which I think that was another thing that um, was news to us that we weren't aware of is that like you know and not to not to scare anybody, but it is possible to end up not getting a diagnosis, which to Chase's point, um, you know, they have a kind of umbrella diagnosis that they'll give to kiddos or to people um, if that's the case um, so that they can still receive help and services that they require. Um, But we didn't realize like, oh my gosh, like we may end up in a situation where we actually don't ever figure out what is going on. Um, so to cut to, like Chase said, we did a million tests. They all came back negative. They kept coming back negative. And, and the emotional aspect of that too, just, you know, you almost, it's like a sigh of relief in a way. And it kind of fuels your hope that like, oh my gosh, maybe this will just be a fluke. Like maybe Maybe it's something she'll grow out of or like it, there's not anything, um, bigger going on here. And we had several of those where we kind of like had this hope of like, oh my gosh, this is, maybe this won't even be a thing. Um, But then our neurologist said that she wanted to do what's called the whole exome genetic sequencing test. Um, They call it the WESS test. Um, And what they do, it's a newer test, like within the last, don't quote me on this, but I would say like 10 to 15 years. Um, So it's, you know, a state-of-the-art test where they, Uh, Based on how the patient is presenting, they make a determination on what part of the human genome they're going to figuratively go deep diving in 
um, to try to look for genetic mutations. Um, and so that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes about, I think, three months to get the results back. It requires a cheek swab, you know, a, ch- a cheek swab for to capture DNA from uh, multiple members of the family. Chase and I, I think our parents all provided mm-hmm. um, swabs. And, and then we waited three months to get the result back. Um, but sure enough, that was the test that gave us our diagnosis, the whole exome genetic sequencing test, the West test. I always like really want to emphasize that because I've talked to, you know, I, obviously with, with what I do on Instagram as an influencer, um, I talk to a lot of special needs parents and mm-hmm. I'll get messages from, from parents who are trying to, still in that process of trying to get a diagnosis for their kiddo and They've never even heard of that test. And, you know, maybe they're just not at that point in the process yet, but I just always, I want people to know about it because for us, you know, that was the one that gave us our answer. Um, And it came back that Chase and I are both carriers of this incredibly rare genetic mutation, um, which in talking to geneticists, we found out that that in and of itself is not abnormal. He said that the average person walking around you know, has on average about five to eight mm-hmm. genetic mutations. It's very normal to have genetic mutations, but um, these you don't present. Well, in and the it's same less normal. It's less typical to then end up procreating with someone who has the exact same genetic mutation as you do. Like, and that's why their disease is so rare because the chances that Chase and I would end up getting married, and we both have this recessive gene. This yes, <laughs> this recessive gene and this mutation on this this gene for uh, you know that causes this disease it's just it's one in a million we were meant to be honey that's right (laughs) anyway um but that's what we discovered that we were carriers of this genetic mutation and that charlie had inherited both mutated copies so one from me one from chase and it ended up it resulted in this disease chase and i as carriers were not affected um because it's a recessive disease, meaning you have to have both, both genes have to be mutated. Sorry, this genetics 101 from non-medical professionals. <laughs> uh, we're botching this. It's fine. It's fine. But, um, but in Charlie's case, because she inherited both copies of the, of the mutated genes, she had the disease. Um, and it's called congenital disorder of glycosylation, CDG. Um, the specific type that our girls have is called ALG11, ALG11, CDG. Um, it's incredibly rare. Um, there's over, gosh, probably now 200 different types of CDG. Um, CDG in and of itself is extremely rare. I think there's less than, I, I don't know how many overall diagnosed, but, but in the thousands, yeah, like a very, very <laughs> small number. Um, but our daughter's specific type of CDG, there are less than 20, 20, I think, ever, ever. In, in all of time, in all of the world, less than 20 that have ever been diagnosed with their type of CDG, um, which is really freaking crazy. <laughs> yeah, going back to that number that I shared earlier, so the 30 million people that are living today in the U.S. that have a rare genetic disease, one in 10 of those goes undiagnosed, right? Yes. So of those nine, there's a lot of rare genetic diseases um and <laughs> with CDG it's a rare of rare mm-hmm. type of thing so our experience has been very different than 
other diseases that are more common, you know, or maybe it's, you know, cerebral palsy or others. And so we've, I feel like there's a lot of things that we've learned um, from a testing perspective, from this diagnostic process, because there hasn't really been a lot of people. I mean, we, we've found networks, right, to connect with. We found social media groups. Um, we found, that's another thing that I think we should talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think that leads to another big piece of advice. And <laughs> hopefully you guys are, are able to pull out the nuggets of advice through all of this because it's, again, sorry, I feel like I'm all over the place. But, um, yeah, once we had the diagnosis, again, because it was so rare, it, it felt a little bit like, okay, so now what? And, you know, normally in that scenario, you look to your doctor for answers and for guidance on prognosis, what to expect, how to treat. Um, is there a cure? Is there a treatment? In our case, no, there is no cure. There is no cure for CDG. Um, there's really no treatment. Like, there really aren't things to treat the specific issue that is happening in the body. Um and in our case, it was such a rare diagnosis that um, our doctor, for one, had never diagnosed it. She had tested for it. She said, I think she said she had tested for it one other time, but had never actually diagnosed it. That was her first time. Um, so she... But she'd also been like a neurologist for 25, like 30 plus years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so again, just... So she'd, ha- she'd been exposed to a lot of patients as well. Like, it wasn't exactly. like she was brand new in her career. Y- yes. So so again, just speaking to how rare, in fact, it really is. Um, in all of that time, she still had only ever, ever tested for it one time. Um, and she knew nothing about it. That's the point that I'm making. She knew nothing. And this isn't, this isn't putting her down in any way. The point is, um, when you're dealing with rare disease, there's a really, really good chance that your medical professional will not know a lot about that disease because it is so rare. You know, she was learning about the disease in the same way that we were, which was literally Googling it and just trying to find anything, which, by the way, wasn't much, anything that we could on the Internet about about the diagnosis, about the disease. Um, and that was really challenging. And I think the, the takeaway that I want to put forth with that is, um, you know, that kind of led us to being to searching out um, our community, if you will, other parents or other folks who had been diagnosed. We were really fortunate in that our, we, had a, we did have a really wonderful neurologist in California. We love her. We miss her. Um, and she was really, really great about um, trying to connect us yeah. to that community, mm-hmm. the CDG community. Um, and I don't even remember, like, again, she was super unfamiliar with it, but she remembered one contact that she had who had affiliations with CDG. Um, he ended up being a fantastic contact who was able to kind of pull us into Facebook groups, um, you know, a, a website, this whole global CDG Global Alliance, um, this group of folks who, like, this organization that existed, Um and in in the case of rare disease, I think it's often I think it's often true that the parents of other kiddos with the disease are like one of your absolute best resources. Mm-hmm. That was definitely the case for us. I feel like it still is, it's right? Still it is. still is. Yeah. We look to them of like, hey, as they get bigger, and you know, we look for seating, strollers, like travel, like all of these all questions of like, things. how do we, how do you do it? You Have know, you guys experienced exactly. this? Has your kiddo ever done this? Um, what medication are you using to treat this? Uh, what 
you know, what are your kiddos seizures responding to? We've tried every medicine, they're, it's not working, they're totally resistant. I mean, yeah, it's, it becomes this, um, it's just this well of knowledge and actual lived experience from these parents. Um, and so that's one of my biggest pieces of advice as well. Our biggest piece of advice is to find your community and to really press your doctor to help you with that. Um, like I said, I, I think had our doctor not been as invested in making sure that we were connected with those folks, it would have been harder. Um, she was sort of the starting point for us, you know, and then we got weaved into all of it. Um, but I would definitely recommend making sure that you find your people, find your community, and use them as your biggest resource in, in learning more about the disease, the prognosis, and getting answers to your questions. Absolutely. So we've done stage one, two, three, stage four of the diagnostic process is communicating the diagnosis, right? And so we got the diagnosis for Charlie and now stage five and six are treatment and then outcomes. And so what, uh, in terms of treatment, what does that look like for, and, and actually I want to pause here for a second. So we just talked about Charlie. We have two girls. Do you want to go into Ava's story a little bit and then we'll kind of go into treatment and Outcomes for the yeah. both of them? Yeah. Um, Ava's, Ava's whole, the process of, of diagnosis for Ava was totally different because we already knew that Charlie was a carrier of this disease. And if you're not aware of this, so once we got Charlie's diagnosis, we obviously knew at that point that we were carriers of this genetic mutation um, and that there was, you know, back to genetics 101, there was a 25% chance because Chase is a carrier, I'm a carrier. Anytime we had a baby, there would be a 25% chance of them also having CDG. Um, and so our conclusion from that was, okay, we're not just going to roll the dice. We're not going to, if we want more kids, we're going to need to do IVF. That's when we Test. discovered IVF, mm -hmm. um, in, vitro, in vitro fertilization, um, because it allows you, if you have a diagnosis, so that's the key part, if you have a specific diagnosis, IVF allows you to test your embryos for that specific diagnosis um, so that you can avoid perpetuating the disease in, in future children. So we we came to understand that that's what we would have to do. Um, By the way, I want to just pause here for a second. Yeah. One of the reasons we even knew that was a possibility is because we'd met a family in this community in person. By the way, their um, child is named Charlie as well and has the same... Same diagnosis. same diagnosis and same type of CDG as, as our Charlie. Two Charlies. But they, they've had the two ads. kids via IVF. <laughs> and it, it like, so through that community, that kind of gave us that spark of hope. Totally. Absolutely. Yes. Didn't um, mean to sidetrack or interrupt no, you. I'm sorry. <laughs> such a good point. Um, and while we were in the process of, you know, just navigating um, acclimating to Charlie's diagnosis. Um, God had other plans, and we got pregnant by surprise with little Miss Ava. Um, because we already had Charlie's diagnosis, when I found out that I was pregnant with Ava, I think I called our geneticist before I called Chase to tell him. I honestly think that <laughs> that might have been the first call that I made. Uh, because I instantly knew the the risk, you know, the, uh, is that the word? Or the probability, yeah. Uh, yeah, 
Ansley knew that there was a chance that she would also have CDG. Um, so we called the geneticist, and they informed us that at, um, I think it's between 10 and 11 weeks, um, if you have a specific diagnosis that you know you're looking for, you can do what's called a CVS test. I'm not going to, I will botch what that actually stands for if I try, so I won't try, but if you can Google it. Um, CVS test is a test that's in utero, um, and at 13 weeks, so it takes a couple weeks to get the results, but at 13 weeks, we got the result with Ava that she also had CDG. Um, you know, and in this particular episode, Chase and I aren't going deep into, um, you know, what we went through emotionally through this process, <laughs> which was a lot, just being totally honest, it was a lot. Um, and we will save that for another day. Like we will share that because I, you know, hopefully that can offer some solidarity and some, I don't know, um, just some value as well. Um, but yeah, we found out Ava's diagnosis. Um, and again, it was just kind of this understanding of, okay, this is, this is what we're, Mm -hmm. this is the situation. Um, it was, easier I would say with Ava because we'd already navigated all of that with Charlie so we already uh, working with specialists we already knew the services in place we had yeah we kind of knew a little better what we were doing at that point um but then it was navigating having two (laughs) two medically complex kiddos um but I think that's another good point that I want to bring up another huge takeaway was um advocating for your services um which is one of the reasons that it's so important to push for getting a diagnosis because your your diagnosis is what will give you access to services, which broadly put is um, anything that could be beneficial in helping your child to develop and also in helping you to take care of your medically complex kiddo. So in our case, it was things like, um, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, speech therapy, we've done speech therapy, um, being, you know, at referrals to um, specific schools um, for, you know, atypically developing kiddos, um, equipment, Chase, Chase mentioned equipment, you know, you suddenly, you're, you're introduced to this just massive world of just, a lot of stuff you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, just stuff, <laughs> things that like you had no idea existed and that you certainly never thought that you were going to have to navigate or know about. Um, and it can be really, really overwhelming, which that was the, that's the whole point of this episode. It can be so overwhelming and so hard to navigate. And you are entitled to whatever it is that you need to help your, your kiddo thrive. Um, and that is another area that I would I just advise being such a huge mama bear, papa bear advocate of is making sure that you are getting those services. And in our experience, a lot of figuring those things out was really just having to be so annoying to the healthcare provider in asking questions. That is one of my biggest pieces of advice. Ask so many questions all of your questions. I made a decision early in that process and I never struggled with this anyway, but (laughs) (laughs) I just decided like, I am not going to be afraid to ask them literally anything. 
as much as I need, as many times as I need to, um, because that is my way of advocating for my kiddo. Um, and in a lot of cases, you guys, that was the way that we figured out what was available to us or got the answers that we needed. Um, you know, you have to understand that, that sometimes being on the other side as a healthcare provider, in most, in a lot of cases, I'm guessing, um, they don't necessarily, they've not, they haven't been in your shoes. They don't necessarily have kiddos with diagnoses themselves. Um, they may not be aware of the questions that need to be answered or the things that you are going to be wondering. Um, they can't read your mind. You know, they're, they're just humans doing the best they can. Um, and so the best thing that you can do for yourself, for your kiddo, is to just ask all the questions. Um, because usually it ends up uncovering, you know, the things that you need, the things that are available to you, um, your community, the things that will help you. Um, that, that's been huge for us. Absolutely. And as we talk about kind of this step five and step six, the, the treatment and the outcomes, um, a lot of that and even and everything that Shannon has just said the importance of connecting to that community so that you are, you know, what are the right questions to ask? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think there were many people in that community that helped us to ask the right questions or to be persistent with health providers until we were able to get, you know, what we needed to And also just making the right connection. So now going to, yeah, again, treatment and outcomes and, and just kind of, I would describe that as like um, life after diagnosis. Um, you know, those, the connections that you make within that community, um, within your diagnosis are, for us, they've been invaluable, not only from the resource that they are in caring for your, your child, um, but also in furthering, um, treatment or, you know, like in our case, for example, CDG is an incurable disease as of the way that exists now currently, um, but there are a group of scientists, doctors who are working on changing that. Um, and to Chase's point, you know, once we became connected with this community, we found out about a conference that our CDG community puts on every year. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess it's every year. It's mm-hmm. um, every other year down in San Diego, and on the off years, it's in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's overseas, um, and we've been to both locations. And it just ends up being so good. Um, It was through that conference that we got connected with um, a scientist who had been working on a treatment for CDG. Um, They were working on drug repurposing, which is when you take an existing drug that's already being used on the market um, and just having some efficacy for certain, you know, presentations, um, certain whatever, diagnoses, um, and you repurpose it for something else, for a different diagnosis or a different set of symptoms. Um, and they had, they were experiencing success with a different type of CDG. And, you know, we made this connection, came barreling in all <laughs> bushy-tailed and bright-eyed, like, what about our type? Like, could we try this for our type? Um, he ended up having a connection with someone at a university who, you know, they're always looking for... Research. Yeah like research projects, um, they were able, the university was able to fund, because all that's the other thing, all of this stuff is just cost really, money. really expensive, yes. Um, but the uver- university fronted the cost 
for the most, well, that's not entirely true, but we also a lot ra- of it. We, we raised we some money as well. We did yep. a lot of fundraising um, to put toward that as well, but they subsidized a lot of it um, to be able to do this drug repurposing project where, again, they are just trying to find um, drugs that are already approved on the market that might help with symptoms of CDG, of our girls' specific type. Um, and we are still very deep in, like, in the thick of that process. And that'll be, maybe that's an episode for uh, another day in and of itself, because it's very, very fascinating if that's your jam. Um, but all of that to say, it was through being connected with that community that we made those contacts. And hopefully, the ending of that story will be something amazing, like they approve, we found this drug that also helps with symptoms of algal 11 cdg and charlie's now s- saying words or you know what i mean like that she's kind walking of, or yeah like that's kind of the goal is that it would help with something enough that there's like a um notable improvement in some quality of life aspect you know and even if it's in something really minimal um she's eating orally right as a special <laughs> needs parent like no gain is too small you completely lose your mind over every single developmental gain that your kiddos make, and we would be over the moon about literally anything, like any sort of progress or anything that it could possibly help. It all feels worth it. Um, so right now, that drug repurposing is something that we're still in the middle of, and we hope to have great things to, to share in the future about that as well. Um, as far as treatment goes, our girls both go to PT, um, they also have occupational therapy, um, a lot of, and some of that happens within school. Um, they also, yeah, they go to a, um, so they actually go to a, a, a typical elementary school, but that has, um, programs for atypically developing kiddos. Um, in California, it was a specific school. It wasn't integrated with the <coughs> typically developing kids. Um, so it kind of just depends on where you live and that's so sorry again (laughs) jumping all over the place but that's another huge huge takeaway and something major that we learned through this process is that every state is so different Um, the services that are available to you um, the way that the system works how to navigate it, it it really really varies by state and so again being your own advocate and an advocate for your kiddo in like kind of just pushing, pushing, pushing your healthcare professional to like give you those answers, connect you with, um, uh, what are they called? Um, they have like, they can dedicate someone to you and the name is escaping me, but, um, you know, basically it's not an account manager, but some, but like that where it's someone who is, um, their purpose is to help you navigate this whole, you know, the, the like a healthcare counselor or something, yeah, like yeah, all sorts. of the different services, all of the yeah. things, um, they'll help make appointments for you. I really wish that I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> we'll think of it right is. after the episode's done. Exactly. Um, but in our experience, so much of what was required, I hate to say it though, was pushing, just pushing, pushing, checking in, making sure that we were on their radar. Because again, you have to remember, you are one of how many patients on their roster, <laughs> on their patient list. And it's not faulting them in any way. I can't even imagine um, the enormity of that job. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one 
But just the reality is no one is going to care about your kiddo more than you. You care about your kiddo. That's just it. Your doctor's not going to care about them the way that you do. They just won't. They can't, right? Because they need to care about all of the kiddos on their list. Um, And so you have to be that squeaky wheel. You have to be the annoying one who asks a million questions. You have to, um, you know, pull aside. I mean, we even did this, you guys. Like, we have friends, really, really good friends, who um, uh, are healthcare professionals. Our good friend is a doctor. And we would, um, well, and also our cousin is a doctor. And your uncle is a doctor. I mean, we would pull, we would call them up or pull them aside and, and just ask them our questions, even just about how the healthcare system works internally. I think that was another really eye-opening um, aspect of all of this for us is um, we just hadn't, you know, fortunately, we hadn't had to interact in that world very much because our health had generally been good. Um, knock on wood. And, <laughs> and so there was just so much that we didn't understand about how it worked. Um, and it, it ended up being really helpful to kind of understand that on some level, to, you know, to know who you're talking to. Um, it was so eye-opening for us to realize, like, and this is just, this is going to sound like such a, you know, duh, <laughs> but it was so eye-opening to realize these are just human beings doing their job. And, yes, they are incredibly educated, um, very skilled. I'm not... I'm not minimizing their expertise, but they don't know everything. And I mean, we kind of discovered that when it's like it's their best, like it's yeah, their it's best like, guess, right? Based off of the information that's available to them, they're making an educated guess. Exactly. And and I don't think that was and as clear infallible. to us before before kind of this whole process that we went through with our girls. And what really shed light on that, honestly, was the fact that like we'd be in the hospital and. Um, you know, the, uh, first shift where well, I don't know what they, how they refer to it internally, but it'd be like the first shift doctor would give one set of instructions or, you know, one, uh, whatever, one set of instructions, uh, or assess the situation this way. Like, okay, well it's this, 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 right. And then their shift would end, new doctor would come on call and they would have a totally different assessment of what was going on and different directives, um, and in some cases they contradicted each other. And I remember the first time it happened distinctly, um, it was just so eye opening. And I remember kind of calling attention to it and being like, now, wait a second, Dr. A said this, you're saying this, those can't both be true because they contradict each other. So what, what are we doing here? You know? And it was sort of this aha moment of being like, oh my gosh, like they don't, know for sure like they're just making a an educated assessment which obviously is highly valuable um but I think all of that to say just it kind of reinforced for us the importance of getting second opinions Mm -hmm. um of using your own own intuition and please do not misunderstand me this is in no way me saying like we know more than (laughs) you know than the doctors and I am I'm not in that camp but I would never discount your intuition. Um, that is, again, why I'm such an advocate of asking all the questions. It's okay to and get a second and third opinion. Yes, because 
just understanding that that is what's happening, educated guesswork, that is what is happening. Um, understanding that will fuel you and make you feel more comfortable with, with getting second opinions and confirming it. Um, and more data, the better, right? Like the more information you have, um, the more you have to work with in making those, those calls. And so it can only help. It can only help you. So we've talked about quite a few things. And in, on this episode, Shannon's a great uh, storyteller, a recall of information. Shannon's very ADHD. And you no, can no. This episode she's, is revealing that. No, she's doing great. <laughs> um, so in, in summary, this six-step process for diagnosis starts with the, a, the patient experiencing some sort of health problem. The second step is connecting this patient, connecting with the health system. The third step is gathering information, gathering, collecting information, all the tests. Fourth step is the communicating of the diagnosis. Fifth step is um, the um, treatment. And sixth step is um, outcomes of that, of that treatment. And so I hope that if you're going through that. that. Yeah, I, I hope that if you're going through that or if you know someone else that's going through that, through that, I think it's important to know that's kind of how the process works. But I would also say, and again, it's not necessarily as part of that six-step process, but finding you know a group that are already advocating for that disease because they are struggling with it themselves or um, I think those groups can help you to navigate that journey as well. Um, I think asking your friend or asking yourself those same questions of where, where are people um, that are struggling with this disease? What are the questions that I should be asking? What are the services that are available? What can I do to help to, to make this better? Um, you can do a little bit of research yourself uh, if you have a friend or family member that's struggling with this and send them information as well. Um, I know it is a lot of information and can be very overwhelming. And so um, I think that that could always be helpful for yourself individually um, or others that you know that might be going through that. Amen to all of that. Um, and again, I think biggest takeaway is advocacy like just being a shameless advocate for your family, for your kiddo, for yourself. Um, Ask all of the questions shamelessly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and to that point, one thing I wanted to add there is I think in a lot of cases, Chase and I also, it's not like we, we didn't even necessarily know what questions to ask. Um, But sometimes one of the most powerful questions can simply literally be, okay, what else? What else can we do? We're hitting a brick wall here. What else can we do? Like, make sure your healthcare, whoever you're working with, the professionals you're working with, make sure they know that you mean business, that you you are determined to figure this out um, and to put the legwork in for as long as it takes. I mean, because again, a lot of what is required um, in these cases is just effort, just straight up effort. And it's time and it's energy and it's effort. Um, and depending on who you're working with, you may have to push to get all these people to want to put that in. Um, but you know you can put it in as mama bear, as papa bear, and you just don't be afraid to push. What else? What else can we do? Um, what does that mean? 
Can you help me understand that? Yes, yes. Um, What is available to us to help? Um, Where are our resources? Who can you refer us to that can help us navigate this or that can answer questions about this? Um, Yeah, I mean, all of those all of those questions and more, whatever you come up with. Um, and just do it fearlessly, do it shamelessly. Um, you know, I, being in this situation of having a kiddo with a, a diagnosis of, of any kind, I don't think it's, you know, no parent wishes to be in this situation, right? Like we all just want our kiddos to be healthy. Um, but if you find yourself in this situation, we want you guys to know that, you know, best case scenario is at least knowing what is going on. So then you can make the absolute best of it. And having a specific diagnosis will enable you to do that because you'll understand what you're dealing with, what's available to you, all of that. And if you don't have a diagnosis, it's still treating those symptoms. For sure. Right. So you can still follow that same process. And still, you know, and then it's the question of like, okay, this is the situation. So now what? Like, what do we need to do then? How do we work the system, so to speak, to get all the services that we need then? Um, You know, how do we, like, what cadence, what cadence should we revisit this on? Like, they're constantly furthering medical technology. When do we come back to the table and say, okay, what new tests exist? Like, let's try again. Let's see if there is something now that could help us get the diagnosis. And like I said, it's, it takes effort, um, but it's, it's so worth it. Um, and I just want to, you know, again, I know that this was more of, um, I don't know, it, it wasn't necessarily the emotional journey that we went on with our girls getting their diagnoses. Um, this is more of the tactical journey, but, but I do also just want to say, I want to reiterate that if you do find yourself in this situation of, um, you know, discovering that your child has some type of medical complexity. Um, I know for Chase and I, the early stages of that were were so hard. You know, there's there's that um, acclimating to this, you know, this new life and kind of mourning the loss of the life that you thought you were going to have with your child and that you thought your child was going to have. And that's that's such a real thing. There's no shame in that. It's such a, like, necessary thing. Um, but we do we do hope that we can be an example of the truth that it, your life can, it's, it can be so beautiful, even though it may be different than what you had planned. Um, you know, that your kiddos having a medical diagnosis is not... Um, it's just a different journey. It's just a different kind of beautiful. And, um, you know, I think so many parents end up feeling like they they wouldn't change it, you know, that it is as it was meant to be. Yes, obviously we all want our kiddos to be healthy, but knowing that this is what it is, um, it, you see all of the beauty in it and you feel so, so grateful for it. And it is possible to get to that point, even if you don't feel like you're there right now. I guess what I want to say. Man, I really struggled to spit. <laughs> no. <laughs> so where can they find us in the future for future episodes? Okay, so for future episodes. And also, one one thing I want to say to wrap that all up. Um, guys, will you please let us know either on my Instagram, at Shannon Willardson, in via DM, or it could be on our YouTube. If you watch this on YouTube, in the comments there, 
Um, somehow, will you please let us know if this was helpful in any way, how it could be more helpful, what questions you have. Um, we feel like it was a little bit all over the place, but we would love to be able to deliver it in a way that's really directed toward um, people's actual questions and um, you know, concerns, needs, in inquisitions, <laughs> whatever it may be. <laughs> inquisitions, that's a, that's a fun word that came out. Um, <laughs> so please, please give us feedback on this episode specifically. What other questions do you have about diagnosis? What more can we tell you? What are you curious about? Um, what do you, would you like us, is there anything you'd like us to dive a little deeper on? Please let us know. And to Chase's question, um, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. That's right. Anywhere that you listen to your podcast, or you can watch us on YouTube under Willardson Family. Is that our YouTube name? What's our YouTube name? It is Willardson Family. Willardson Family. Um, on the Family Made Podcast Network, or on Instagram at Shannon Willardson, um, or on TikTok too at at, Sh at Shannon Willardson. <laughs> Man should learn my, my handles better. <laughs> but thank you, you guys. Thank you for being here for this diagnosis. We feel like it's an important one because the subject matter is really important um, and obviously has just had such a huge impact on our lives. So we hope this added value in some way. Again, please give us feedback so that we can, you know, do this again if needed, answer additional follow-up questions. Um, but we're just, we love you guys. We're thankful that you're here. And thanks, thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. On the Jinx, Don't Judge. Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> on the Don't Judge, Just Love podcast. Yeah. We'll talk soon. <laughs>